You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. message is entitled Resting in Jesus. Resting in Jesus. We're going to look at Matthew 11 here. We can be very familiar verses. Many of you are going to be like, yep, heard that before. But that's what's great about being a preacher. I don't really ever have to come up with anything new. It's awesome. You just get up here and say the same thing. Man, this guy talks about Jesus a lot. They sing about Jesus. Yeah, every week, right? You know, it sounds like a broken record. In some ways, that's really good, right? We, we need reminders. We, we need to be told the same things over and over. And yet today, I think today will be refreshing as well. Uh, but I, I know some of these things I've said before here at this church many different times in many different ways. And yet I think we still need to be reminded of it. And when I was writing, I was like, wow, I, I need this as well. So let's look at Matthew 11, verse 28. Uh, we're going to just start reading in verse 25, just kind of leading into it. Verse 25 says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to gracious children. Yes, Father, for such has been your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Verse 28, I want you to notice these words, we're going to be talking through them in this order, come, take, learn, and find. Come, take, learn, find. Those are our four points today. Come to me, it says in verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, we come before you and we're grateful for your word and your truth. Speak to us today, God, as we open it. Reveal your, your word to us, your truth. Let it come alive to us. Help it impact us. Help it change us, God, and yet us... In so many ways, Lord, help us to realize maybe of what we maybe already know. As our hearts are so prone to wonder and run after things that we don't need to be running after. We're searching for meaning and value in so many things. God, help us to come back to where, where we know you are. That you love us. You care for us. And God, you are with us even in this moment and you're, you're calling for us to come to you. God, help us in that. We love you and we praise you. Thank you for your word and your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 11, this passage, come, take, learn, and find. So as we were starting, it's been a busy summer and where has the time gone? Time flies by. We get this all the time, but, you know, time flies by and then it slows down, right? You're waiting in the drive through line and time cannot go any slower, right? 
You're at Market Basket with your groceries, with kids, and you're in that line that is crawling back to the back. It, it, time seems to just slow down to a crawl. And then, uh, like Camp Monadnock this weekend, it's like, where has the time gone? Every minute has been flying by. Summertime feels like it just started a few, month, a few days ago rather than a few months ago. Where has the time gone? Why is that that so many times we look at time, a, a particular 24-hour period, and at times it flies and at times it doesn't. Life can seemly, seemingly come at us in a, at a pace, or some would say a dizzying pace. It seems to be faster and faster, things to go and do more and more. I often hear, you know, hey, how you doing? What's the answer we always say, most of us? Good, fine, busy, right? Isn't that the other one? I mean, those are probably the three I hear most often. Oh, I'm doing fine, doing good, busy, right? And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's good. Bible, we'll, we'll talk about that today and how we often feel as if we, we don't have enough time, we'll say, because we're so busy. I think someone was saying even today, but that means our lives are full. Our lives are full of, of life, right? We have so much going on. That's a good thing. And I think, in fact, as a disclaimer, is today we're talking a lot about rest, slowing down is the message, really, aim of today. But I think uh, there's often times in life, and life is really an act of, as I was reading in this book that was talking about ministry life in particular, that it is an act of unbalancing and rebalancing. You ever, you, in ministry or in life, in counseling in particular, you, you unbalance certain aspects of your theology to minister to someone who has a particular need. They need the love of God in this moment, so you, you focus in that aspect of love. But then theology in a sense that uh, uh, the systematic study of, of the entire Bible and our knowledge of God holistically as who he is, then we rebalance everything that God, God is, yes, wrath in, against sin and punishment and judgment, and yet he is love and all of these things. So there's often this unbalancing and rebalancing, and life can be that way. You don't ever tell a, a, a mother of a newborn baby, hey, just why don't you just take a few days off, like relax, you know, just sleep in a little bit, you know. Life's busy at that time, right? And it's just life. You can't slow down certain things. You get three kids under the age of six or whatever, it's just busy at certain times, right? That's just how it is. But I do think it's not necessary that you can change life or you can change time, but I think you can change the relationship you have with time. And that's what I want to kind of explore a little bit today, how we go about uh, exploring that relationship how we often become slaves to our own schedules rather than truly resting in our relationship with Jesus and who He says He is and His finished work. Because I, I think so many times that I live in a life where I, I often am wanting to, things to be on time and punctual and done well and all these things, and there's wonderful things, but, but often I have a tendency to rush and be in a hurry and I just think sometimes in life I miss so much because I'm always, uh, I don't want to fall behind. I want to keep up with the other person next to me. I've given illustrations in the past of running on a treadmill, the treadmill of life, and we're running, competing with the other person next to us who's on a treadmill as well, and neither of us are going anywhere. <laughs> we're all just rushing. And I don't believe we have to adopt the world's mentality of time, their view of time, what's important. Time is 
money, right? Right? That's right. So, so that viewpoint, every moment, every minute, redeeming the time, a biblical concept, but if taken so far, we never relax or rest. We're always in a rush, and we never rest in Jesus. And it's not a resting of laziness. Don't misunderstand me. I think that's my disclaimer to start here. It's not, a, it's not an acedia or an apathy. The Bible says work heartily in all you do. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. So that's not what we're saying here today. I said it last week and this week. Dallas Willard says it this way, that grace is not opposed to effort but to earning. There's a difference between effort and discipline and and dedication, commitment, surrender to Jesus, and earning that, right? Earning my way versus this effort that we put in. That's a wonderful thing. There's there's that balance, and that's kind of what I'm trying to find, try to find that balance today. But what I'm going to do kind of beginning is um, kind of explore, because it's fascinating and I find it interesting, uh, is this kind of history of time and technology to begin with. I can remember uh, even growing up uh, when it's just basically just time changes and technology has changed a lot, even in my short little lifetime, right? Because I remember my mom telling me when I was a little kid, don't, don't sit too close to the TV, right? Because it'll, it'll burn your eyes out, right? Do you remember that? <laughs> and you, the kid, and so you don't, don't sit too close to the TV. It'll fry your brain, right? And then what do we do all day long, many of us, or many of you work on computers all day long, or you hold your little screen, right, this f- close to your face, right? You binge whatever, talk whatever, social media, whatever, and we're with our little screens all day long, three inches from our face. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, times have changed. I don't know why. Right now I'm at church preaching from an iPad, you know? It's just technology is a weird thing, <laughs> Things have changed. And yet Andrew Root writes this uh, in his book, The Congregation in a Secular Age, speaking about the, the things that the church as a whole faces today. And he talks about, if we look back all the way to Paul Revere riding his little horse on horseback, right, around warning New England about the British Uh, to the Pony Express delivering things throughout the United States, to eventually the iPhone, which was invented an ancient many years ago in 2007. That's a long time ago when you think about it. But from Paul Revere, all this thing, and when we think back in his days, time was ultimately relative to where you lived, where you were at that moment. Because back then it took too long to cross a space of, say, even 50 miles to be concerned with the coordination of time and everybody being on time and everybody being connected. Carl Honor put some concrete data to this. They've studied, and he said, it actually, in the early 1880s, for instance, New Orleans was 23 minutes behind Baton Rouge, simply 80 miles to its west. And when nobody could travel faster than a horse, such absurdities didn't even matter. Who cared if it was 1045 in Minneapolis, 1055 in Duluth, 1105 in Madison? There's no direct immediate way to talk to them in Duluth or Madison anyways. So life at that time was relative where you were, and it operated at a much slower pace. See how I slowed my rate of speech? Slower pace. But the coordination of clocks didn't really become important until much later when technology changed. It wasn't until 1883 when clocks were actually standardized, and that was really only 140 years ago or so, 
Then the railroad made it possible for you to cross a 130-mile span or place very quickly. So then it became necessary for Minneapolis and Duluth to be on the same clock. So then technology changed the speed of life for both of these places. All of the social lives, the rhythms of life, the way people interacted with places that were far apart, everything began to be synchronized and things continually kept speeding up. Believe it or not, there's a book called Faster that talks about this idea. It said there was a time and point where there was kind of this thought that the human body couldn't handle speeds faster than 25 miles an hour. And if you did, your brain would turn to mush, like you said about that point, right? And then, and then some of you might have gotten done over the last summer watching Top Gun, where people are like flying at G speeds, you know, and their faces peeling back, right? As we, or, or we go on roller coasters, or you drive basically at that speed down the road, okay? So it's funny how time changes, technology changes, and our understanding of it. And yet human bodies, human people, we, you and me, there is limits to us, right? In fact, there's a German term. I'm going to try it. It says Zeitkrankheit, all right? Zeitkrankheit. I know Birgit will probably correct me later. I get nervous about these. Greek words I can just say, however, but when there are German-speaking people here. Uh, but, but my understanding for the Greek word is that it means, uh, it means time sickness. It's actually a, a, like almost a diagnosis, uh, saying that you, the time has made you sick. We, we would call it burnout, Burnout, and maybe as many books that I even read leading up to my sabbatical about pastor burnout and learning to read the signs of burnout. And so in Germany, uh, there's that term that describes it through time sickness. And we'll take vacations or we'll take times of meditation or slow down in order to take that kind of aspirin for the time sickness that we might have. But that relationship with time, if that never changes, then I think we're just kind of headed back into it each and every time as we push our limits constantly until we know we need a break. We never kind of think ahead of time about this. And these are things I was thinking about on my Sabbath a lot. A lot of this was going through my head. Uh, Some of this is just things I've been compiling for a while now. But if we go further into this idea before we jump into the passage... And we'll go through this passage. It's a, it's a very familiar, I think it will help provide a wonderful balance to these things that I'm sharing with you now. But, but life and this technology, time ultimately stays the same, and yet our relationship with it has changed. And what we see now today is people value so much, there's so much increase in production and efficiency and punctuality, and that's often viewed as our highest good And Andrew Root says this can only continue as he writes, giving this sharing about Gordon Moore, who came up with Moore's Law. Some of you engineers might know that. He predicted in 1965 that chip density, the chips made for computers, that all kinds of computing power would double every 18 months or so. And he says that's largely been correct. Moore's Law was codified, and, and it, it kind of describes in the lightning speedup of technological change. History actually shows us that the period from the invention of the radio in the 19th century, some of you can think back to then, the 19th century to its distribution to be and receive about 50 million listeners took about 38 years. So the invention of the radio to its distribution to 50 million listeners was about 38 years. Uh, The television, introduced a quarter century later, needed only 13 years to achieve 50 million viewers. And the internet went from 
one user, kind of this beginning invention connection, to about its 50 millionth connection in under four years. Jay Kim writes that ultimately this is only going faster. He writes in the analog church, he says, the average phone usage among adults rose from 18 minutes per day in 2008, 2008, to two hours and 48 minutes per day in 2015. And then I don't know what it is today, except for the fact that I did find an average information. It said the average American checks their phone 344 times a day. That can, be come, that can come down to once every four minutes. That's a problem, right? And then it actually said that over half of Americans have never gone longer than 24 hours without their cell phones. Now, some of you are older, you're like, well, that's ridiculous, but think about it, we practically give the cell phone to the child in the womb as they come, right? You know, it's like, this is an issue, right? We have these, this such constant in our faceness of screens and busyness and activity and connection and notifications, and it's just ongoing. And it says that we're actually not talking to each other more, but actually what we're doing is we're doing more work. See, technology back in the day uh, was, was supposed to provide space for us to do less, but what it's done is made space for us to do more. Recent estimates say that there are 300 million active users on Snapchat, 335 million active users on Twitter, 1 billion on Instagram, 2 billion on Facebook. And many of these things, there is nothing wrong with them. I'm on them. I'm using an iPad technology. I'm not saying this is technology is wrong. What I'm saying is what we have done is made space to constantly increase, increase, increase. We're on the treadmill of life running faster and faster. As Andrew Root says, running fast, not in order to move forward, but just to keep from falling behind. And some standard of whatever we've set that we need to meet in order to compete with the Joneses next door. It's this thing that, yes, has existed now. It was existing a long time ago. It's nothing new, in fact. Anxiety breeds in an atmosphere of constant competition and comparison with everyone else's life. And then we're interrupted by the Bible when it says in Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. (laughs) And then we're interrupted when Jesus tells us, hey, everybody, come to me, and I will give you rest. There's just a, there's a different feel there, is it not? There's a different place, a place where you can be at home and rest in Jesus. So he says, come to me. This is the first concept here, and we're going to go through these quickly. The first two we'll spend most of our time on. The last two will be quick, but it, it says, come to me. We come to who? Jesus, but we specifically come to not Jesus as an idea, Jesus as a packaged concept or a lifestyle choice to add on. We come to a person. It's an invitation, a welcoming invitation, one that invites us to come to Him as a person, a personal invitation to the person of Jesus, a relationship. It's not imposing It's inviting. It it isn't proposed to you as a threat, but invitation. In fact, he has just gotten done, maybe not with threats, but with his woes. He has gotten done with his judgment upon certain cities that have not come to him, even though he came to him, to them. 
If you look earlier in the passage, you have your Bible in front of you, you can it Matthew 11, uh, the whole chapter in particular, but really verses 20 and on, right before we read. It talked about how Jesus was denouncing the cities where the mighty works had been done in them because they did not repent, they did not come to him. Their indifference, the place that was brazen in front of him, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Tyre, and Sidon. It says, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades, for the mighty works done in you have been done in other places like Sodom. It would have remained until that day, but even you, Jesus Christ was there working miracles of wonder, and you ignored it. You did not come to Jesus, and that is when he then goes right into the next chapter. It says, at that time, Jesus declared these things and said, come to me, all you who labor and are weary and are heavy laden. It is the sense of 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he would exalt you. Humble yourselves. That is this coming to Jesus because who is to come? Those who are tired, those who are weary, those who labor and are heavy laden. We come to Jesus knowing we need him. Not like those other cities who feel like they are too good for him. Who is to come? J.C. Ryle says we should notice whom Jesus invites He does not address those who feel themselves righteous and worthy of coming. He addresses all who are weary and burdened. It's a wide description. It comprises multitudes of this weary, weary world. All who feel a load in their heart, which they want to be free of, a load of sin, a load of sorrow, a load of anxiety, a load of remorse. All, whoever they may be, and whatever their past lives, All these people are invited to come to Christ, those who know their need. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So he says, come to me. Those of you who are feeling a life of unrest, come to me and you will find rest. I will give it to you. A state of frantic, state of fear and anxiety and, and an effort void of faith. There's no faith in there, there's only effort. And it looks a lot like the disciples feverishly trying to save their own lives in the middle of a storm in Mark chapter 4, I believe it is. When there's a storm, there's a tempest and Jesus is doing what? Sleeping in the boat, Right? He's sleeping in the boat on a cushion underneath, and everyone is losing their minds. (laughs) And Jesus is at sleep. He gets up, and he says some of the most famous words Jesus ever says. Very simple. Peace. Be still. (laughs) Storm's gone. Or the Mary-Martha dichotomy. Martha isn't doing anything wrong preparing for Jesus, readying the house and the meal. She's missed the point of why they're all there. It's for Jesus. Mary is sitting there absorbing and taking in everything. And I think sometimes neither thing is wrong, but this aspect of of where we're at here. Uh, And then this rest, what is it? This rest ultimately comes from Jesus when we come to him. Rest comes from the cross. I've been reading The Pilgrim's Progress. I've mentioned this several different times. It's children's version to my kids, and so it comes in my head a lot while I'm writing. But John Bunyan writes in the Pilgrim's Progress these words, 
You know, those who burden, heavy laden, come to Jesus, come to the cross. John Bunyan writes this, he ran, Christian ran thus, and he came at a place somewhat ascending up a hill, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher, tomb. And so I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosened off his shoulders and fell off from his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and swallowed up and I saw it no more. (laughs) Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death beautiful. And so we come to Jesus, we accept his glorious invitation to rest, made possible by the cross, by his death and his resurrection. We come to him, but what does this rest look like? Second word is rest. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, uh, and I will give you rest. My mistake, my, the second word is take, right? This take my rest, but take my yoke, he says. Is that, is that take the rest? In, in order to receive the rest, we have to take something that's very, very interesting. In fact, it's very counterintuitive. It doesn't seem to make sense. Take a yoke, a yoke of putting on this, this really heavy crossbar that's meant to link oxen together to pull a heavy cart seems very strange. It's like that Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, his little skit where he, he often gets asked, why, why do people ask you, people ask, come up to him asking him why he's got such a big family, right? And, and they say, well, what, what is it like when you had your fifth child? And he says, well, imagine feeling like you're drowning and someone throws you a baby, right? You know, it didn't seem to make sense. It wasn't the thing I needed. I had this I have a fifth child and I, I feel like I'm even busier and heavier than it was before. And, and Jesus says, come to me, I'm going to give you rest. Here's a yoke. It doesn't seem to be the thing that I felt like. I, I felt like here's a pillow. That's what I was hoping for. No, here, here's a yoke. S- submit and surrender to, to something that we put our head. It doesn't seem to make sense. And Dana Ortland says it this way, that Jesus is using this kind of irony. He says the yoke laid on his disciples is a non-yoke. It's a yoke of kindness. And so who could resist that? His yoke is kind, his burden is light. His yoke is a non-yoke, and his burden is a non-burden. What, it's like helium in a balloon. Jesus' yoke does this to us. We're buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and supremely accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He actually lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It's his very heart. It's what gets him out of the bed in the morning, you could say. It's what he is. He's gentle and lowly. We did that book study this summer. And if you had received that book and looked into that concept, and that's some of the ideas he talks about, a yoke of surrender, commitment, submission, by putting it on in faith, we find ourselves to be not burdened, but liberated, to follow an obedience in the pathway of Jesus. A yoke is when it's received, when we give in, when we take of it, we find liberation, we find freedom, we find actual true and lasting rest. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light, but we must take of it. I can think of, I've shared this story before, I believe, when I was a young kid, when I, got, when I would get sick uh, like, and have a high fever, 
um, when it would, I, would, I would often hallucinate. Have you ever had those moments with kids or whatever? It, it gets a little scary, but my, my sister uh, would often, you know, poke fun at me because I'd see like Santa Claus walking down the hallway or all these crazy things, you know. And so she still reminds me all those times. I haven't done it recently, uh, but there was one moment that was rather frightening and I can still remember parts at the end. I don't remember the beginning because I was hallucinating. I had a very high fever and was sick. And I remember what my dad and my sister told me. I came running up the stairs screaming bloody murder because I thought someone was trying to take and hurt my sister. So I was trying to defend the family and defend her from this, this intruder of sorts. And I was, uh, I was out of my mind in some ways. I was fr- frantically grasping and hitting and trying and stopping. And I can, all I can remember to this day is, is this feeling of my dad's big arms coming around me. And he held me, kind of like a yoke, you could say. He just held me tight so I couldn't hurt anyone or myself. And as I wriggled, and eventually all I remember in my mind is that feeling. And then finally just kind of slumping down and, and coming to this almost like surrender, this feeling of, oh, you know, resting in his arms and his strength and in his protection. And reality came to mind, right? <laughs> or maybe if your kids ever had a temper tantrum, mine don't, but, you know, if you ever do, you, you come in, your kids, right, you know, they, they come to you, they're screaming, they're whatever, and yeah, you can leave them alone, but I can remember several times holding my daughter and, and, and holding them tight as they fought against it, or you could say kicked the goads, right, the Bible says. And they, and they, they do that, and then one day, and finally, it's almost like in their little heart, they, they surrender. I love you, and, and you say, I love you, honey. It's okay. It's all right. There's that sense of feeling, this, this resisting, and then this love. And it's that aspect that when we take the yoke of Jesus, it's not a a yoke from someone who doesn't love us. Tim Keller says, point out that whose yoke is it that you're getting? It's Jesus's. He says, take my yoke, my, if you emphasize that word, take my yoke upon you and learn from who? Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. It is Jesus Christ, the one who loves us and whom we take this yoke from. And it's him in whom we learn from. That's the next point here. Learn. Learn from me. This idea of discipleship. This is what the church throughout the ages and centuries has called discipleship. Growing in Christ and following him with our lives. A lifetime of transformation. It's a journey. We talked about last week that we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory into another. This transformation, as 2 Corinthians 4 says, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Process of renewal, the process of transformation, the process of discipleship, of following Jesus with our lives, of learning, of growing in grace. Uh, These ways of describing what it means to walk the Christian walk, to live the Christian life, growing in Christ, we take his yoke and we learn a journey and a lifetime of learning. So we don't beat ourselves up when we don't understand it the first time we try, but we press into it. We pray for understanding. Holy Spirit, help me understand this stuff. And as we come to him day in, day out, consistently, he will open us up to us so that we may learn. 
And we learn of Jesus. We learn of him for his heart is beautifully gentle forth us. He is forgiving. He is merciful and lowly or humble in heart. And he loves us so. It's a beautiful aspect of coming to Jesus, one who is not going to reject us, but one who welcomes us in Dane. Ortland says that Jesus is not trigger happy here. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but it's open arms. Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. In that sense, he's saying, trust me, trust me. And then he says, what is it that we will all be looking for that it is that we will finally find? We're going to find rest. It's almost like, I I promise you, it's going to be restful. I know it doesn't look like it, but it's a yoke. But promise me, I'm walking side by side with you. I'm leading you and guiding you in this way. This is what you're made to do. You will find rest in the arms of Jesus, for by grace we're saved, not of works and earning, lest anybody would boast. We find the rest. It's like the treasure that's worth finding, the treasure of life. Our hearts have been looking for it and hungering for it and pursuing for it. Our hearts are creating these idols that we can worship and long for and run after. And instead, it's like we finally find the thing we're looking for, everybody hungers for, is peace and rest. And what do we do when we find it? Do we run away from it? No. It's like Matthew 13 when he speaks about the pearl of great price. Do you know that story where finally you found that thing of value. You sell everything you have to buy it and hold it. It's like the the farmer who, who has a field and in the field he finds a great treasure. And so what does he do? He sells all that he has to buy the field to receive the treasure that's worth having. It is this treasure that It is the very thing we've been looking for and hungering for and thirsting for. And it's when we have it, we hold on to it and we follow it and we give our lives to it. We give our lives to Jesus. And in some ways, it's this finding of the rest that for me is encapsulated with this idea of ultimately realizing what you have. We, we so often just get distracted with keeping up with everything in life, the speed of life that you often don't realize what you actually have in Jesus. Jesus talks to Peter at the end. He says, do you love me? <laughs> he says it multiple times, feed my sheep, you know that story. But, but is, that, is that where we're at today? Is that do we love Jesus? Do we realize what he is? And do we realize what a relationship is with Jesus to a point where we are willing to alter our schedules and our craziness. We're willing to to find our true spiritual lasting rest in the person of Jesus. As we said several weeks ago, who do I have in heaven besides you? What do we have without Jesus? And so if, if we believe that, are we willing to live like that, right? Do we have faith to truly rest in Jesus? As we studied several months ago now, I guess, time flies. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 4. Wandering in the wilderness, their lack of faith not, does not allow them to enter the, the promised land of rest. 
And Joshua leads them to a place of rest, but it's not the greatest rest, for Hebrews 4 says that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Therefore, strive to enter that rest. <laughs> it's an, an effort to strive, but it's recognizing that there remains the Sabbath rest for you. You can enjoy it. It's waiting for you. Step into it. Rest in that place. Surrender to Jesus and you will find this rest. 